Hi everyone, welcome to the Secret Menu Project Podcast. Today we'll be exploring the study of psychology itself, including what it really is, its evolution, the replication crisis, and p-hacking. So psychology, what is it? Well, textbooks suggest that it's the academic and applied study of mental functions and behaviors. The field ultimately aims to benefit society, partly through its focus on better understanding mental health and mental illness. Cool, right? Lots of people underestimate psychology, even going so far as to say that it's not even a real science. This is understandable, as we have many sources to blame, like unfair media portrayal and unfair associations with fringe fields. But psychology is more than therapy and asking people, how does that make you feel? It's more than common sense in your typical everyday thinking. Psychology actually uses all branches of science, sort of like a mega science. Now then, let's jump into the evolution of psychology. It all started in 387 BC, when Plato suggested that the brain is the mechanism of mental processes. Fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years later, and we see people starting to notice abnormalities in their society, or mental illnesses. Some are disgusted and horrified, while others try to come up with theories and cures. In 1774, Franz Mesmer detailed his cure that's now known as mesmerism. Psychology has been greatly influenced by the growth in human rights and democratic ideals. It makes sense, too. Like all other things, psychology started to get fairer treatment as society got more advanced and civilized. It was during the 1800s that we saw dramatic interest in psychiatry and psychotherapy, as well as in the mind and mental illness. One of the biggest changes to come about was a shift in attitude toward mental health patients. Instead of so many of them being locked up and treated horribly, a more moral stance was widely accepted. Freudian psychoanalysis came in along with behaviorism, humanistic approaches, and cognitive behavioral approaches. After a whole bunch of trial and error, tearing apart facts and fiction, the field of psychology has never been more respected than it is today. But we definitely still have a long way to go. And for a field that's so layered and so complicated, we run into some major roadblocks. One of them is called the replication crisis. So, the replication crisis is basically the finding that only one-third of psychological findings can be reproduced. And this isn't just limited to psychology. Neuroscience, economics, and medicine are all having replication errors. When two out of three findings can't be reproduced, that's a problem. According to Schmidt 2009, replication studies serve a wide range of functions like discovering false positives, addressing researcher fraud, and confirming previously supported hypotheses. No single study can fulfill these functions on their own. Only by reproducing a model can we discover its hidden assumptions, bugs, or unexpected interactions. Effective scientific communication requires that all relevant information is shared. All details to running the code ought to be revealed, even if they are scientifically inessential. How do unethical researchers contribute to the replication crisis? By using a fancy technique called key hacking. Alright, back to key hacking. To understand this unethical technique, you first have to know a little bit about significance testing. If a finding is significant, it means that the results are highly unlikely due to chance. Null hypothesis significance testing is typically the first step to objectively separating significant data from insignificant data. It's the most widely used data analysis method in most scientific fields. A low p-value establishes significance. p is the calculated probability of finding the observed or more extreme results when the null hypothesis of a study question is true. p-hacking or selective reporting occurs when researchers collect or select data or statistical analyses until non-significant results become significant. 
There's evidence that, with the way the incentive systems of academic publishing are, they actually foster scientists to engage in questionable research practices like p-hacking. As consumers of information, it's up to us to be wary of such malpractice when findings seem too good to be true. We have to take a second look and separate what's real science and what's pseudoscience. Welcome to Dreams. I'm Lori, and this is hopefully not one, a dream. You've most likely heard of Freud, guy with the glasses and scowl. They say he started psychology. He's obsessed with the unconscious and his mother. He Okay, he likes to split his cigars with Coke. Alright, the last one may not be true. Well, he had a lot to say about dreams. In fact, his third book, which put him on the map, The Interpretation of Dreams, laid the groundwork for most of what we know Freud for today. So, the stuff I mentioned earlier, minus the coke part. He found great meaning and symbolism in dreams. He was very into the unconscious struggle. Dreams, being unconscious, usually, but more on that later, were presumably a place he could find that struggle. But we found that dreams are not nearly as meaningful, nor meaningful in exactly the same way as Freud suggested to us way back along with all his other bullshit, like penis envy. Although, vulva envy has a better ring to it though, doesn't it? But still, psychology's interest in dreams can be traced to him. Hi, um, my name's Caitlin. I'll be interviewing today. Would you mind saying your name into the microphone? Allie? And Matthew. Okay, so our first question is, why do you think people dream? I think people dream um, because things happen in their lives that just might subconsciously kind of come through again through their dreams. Uh, might be from memories or um, they could be creating like future circumstances in a way. Um, I feel like it's just like your mind kind of going over your day-to-day -day life. I think the mind can only handle so much. So we need a little downtime to process what's important and what isn't, and then take that into account and learn and remember for the future so we develop. But I think every night when you, when you dream, it's just your mind's way of telling you what's important and hopefully it sticks, stays through. Uh, do you believe that dreams have deeper meanings? I feel like they could have deeper meanings. Um, some dreams are really vivid and it could be from some traumatic experience you had or just something that's really memorable. Um, it's kind of like your mind kind of going over what's happened and like, so I feel like some dreams just are more important than others. Uh, like I said for the previous question, uh, it's, it's about learning. So when I think, when you think about like a dream that's maybe in the future or something, that's not really something you can process. So I definitely think it's the mind's way of developing maybe some metaphoric meaning. So it's, it's again a time to process, but it's, it's more processing how you can interpret it and, and what you think it's, your mind's really telling you. What do you think about dream interpretation? Like for instance, Freud oftentimes thought that if you saw something in your dream and symbolized something else in your life, something that could happen to you, what do you think about that? Well, like um, Matt was just saying that it can mean like a metaphor, it can like, your dreams don't necessarily have to be um, realistic per se, but like a metaphor used to represent something else. Um, it's just like your subconscious kind of coming through and like in just a different way. Um, maybe it's easier to understand certain things through dreams than in real life. It might be more 
um, accepting since it's kind of like in control what's going on. Uh, totally agree. I think it comes down to uh, interpreting. But the issue is with interpreting is uh, no one might fully understand or there could be other opinions on what it could mean. Because uh, in the end, you know yourself best. But again, there you can lie to yourself in your dreams. And the best scientific consensus on dreams today is that there are three important aspects to dreams. Inputs or stimuli, which is received through different sensory organs, so think seeing in a dream, processing of that input, interconnection of neurons, and finally, the output in the form of response, so the meaningful information conveyed. Or, in non-science jargon, your brain interpreting it all into something that makes dream sense. So basically, just interpreting it. Dreams transport us into very unique experiences that we otherwise don't have in real life, outside of maybe psychedelics. Quick shout out to LSD. But, LSD. but like LSD, it can be difficult to analyze and interpret dreams after the fact, or describe the point that feels so important and vital during the experience. Now think about your dreams for a second. They happen in the narrative, like a movie, right? You're running, the toilet punch is chasing you, you hit a wall, toilet punch gets closer. Well. I don't know if this is universal, but it happens for me in this way. Why is this so? Also, why is it so often that things are always happening to us? Well, we may dream a narrative just because we compose most of our lives and experience in narrative. A lot of life is stories, maybe all of it. But scientists look for bigger reasons for narrative than dreams. What's interesting is dreams are much more vivid when we're woken from REM sleep than non-REM sleep. In a way, we have multiple climaxes to our respective stories tending to happen during the REM phase because that's when shit in the dream club gets litty as a drunk city. New York, not Birmingham. Another thing to notice next time you dream is dreams are not you thinking in a bunch of situations. It's more about perceptions, feelings, rather than thoughts. Feeling the panic, not thinking about, well, maybe I should meditate and calm my mind to bring this anxiety down. Also, don't feel bad that in most of your dreams you feel sad. Sadness is the most common emotion in dreams. Scientists theorize that we regulate negative emotion by dealing with emotions in the dream state, so we feel better when we wake up. Go to bed in a bad mood, wake up in a good mood, something happened there, more than just time passing, right? What do you think the significance of recurring dreams are? Um, they could be like a sign of something, maybe that if it's recurring it's something that's really important in your life. Um, I know like if I'm stressed I tend to dream about the same thing over and over. It's just kind of like my head reminding me of the things I have to do or things that have happened um, that have affected me. Uh, truth is, I don't think humans are good learners. So like, like taking any course and you need a lot of practice. You need to write the same equation 50 times and I think dreams are the same way. You need to keep reminding yourself what's important and until you really fully understand what's what you're th thinking about, considering, and I think that's just your mind's way of telling you this, yeah, like she said, this is very important. Do you believe that dreams are the fulfillment of our desires? Why or why not? Um, I think they could be. Um, I feel like in your dreams, since you're the one who's in control, you can kind of dream how you want to see things in certain ways. So you, like, your desires can be more reachable, more accessible through your dreams than maybe in real life. I think dreams are, again, a, a hard word because there's also nightmares. So uh, when it comes to desires, I guess a dream would fall under that, sure. But also, people definitely have dreams where they, I think they realize they definitely don't want to happen. And I think, again, it's maybe just the brain's way of developing 
what who who you are, what uh, what could happen, what should happen, what you want to happen, and it's more like self development. Why do you think that some dreams are more vivid and memorable than others? Um, they might just have a bigger meaning to you. So like if certain things stand out, I feel like they're more vivid. You're more likely to remember them um, just based off importance to you personally. I, I agree with her completely. I think it comes down to also just memory in general because the, the mind really works off of what you remember. It doesn't create that much that's new. So if you have a really deep memory of something, then it probably would be more vivid. Or if you pass by the same coffee shop every day, you'll know what it looks like. It's just things that you're used to seeing and you, you can see it well and you can remember it well. I think it's more vivid. I think that's what it comes down to. Okay, thank you guys. This was great. One final interesting phenomenon is lucid dreaming. In lucid dreaming, you know you're dreaming, but that doesn't mean you're the director of the movie. You may be more like a conscious robot that still has to follow the script of the dream. Dolores in Westworld? Anyone? Anyway, according to one survey, two out of three of those who have had lucid dreams have had full control of their bodies in their dream. But the ability to control the dream environment and the ability to keep the dream awareness is possible for less than half of reported lucid dreamers in one survey. Still pretty wild stuff to experience to any degree though. Lucid dream control is more likely for those who have had lucid dreams more frequently, are dispositionally mindful when awake, and are younger. The one way you could possibly work on dream controllability is by working on mindfulness if you already have frequent lucid dreams. And don't watch Fox News. But more research is still needed. So yeah, this is where we are on the things that I brought up. We know some of the biological stuff going on during dreams. We know that they're narrative, linear, like we live our lives, although not as tightly plotted as a movie. A bit more Eric Andre show than Pride and Prejudice. And lucid dreaming is a strange phenomenon that has a lot of interesting features, and meditation might be key goals for dream control. Oh, and Freud, majority bullshit. Never forget that. Oh, also, we're indebted to him, and he's a great man, blah, blah, blah. You get it. But yeah, not a lot of definite answers, but a lot of thought-provoking shit, if I do say so myself. Say we have two men. One lies, the other bullshits. Which is worse? Perhaps a better question is, what is the difference between bullshitting and lying anyway? Harry Frankfurt is a philosopher who became fed up with the amount of bullshit in the world. So, he wrote a book aptly named On Bullshit. To him, the honest man and the liar have more in common than the bullshitter. At least they're both concerned with the truth. The same coin, but opposite sides. To the bullshitter, the truth doesn't matter. To him, it only matters that he gives off the right impression, creates the right reality using language to further his agenda, changes his audience's perception. The truth isn't even a concern anymore. It's been sucked dry. That's become the superficial world of fake news and biased journalism that we live in. An 18-year-old youth named Boris in Macedonia founded the website NewYorkTimesPolitics.com, a website that resembled the New York Times homepage. Boris had found that Trump in the 2016 U.S. election had immense viral potential. So, 
He browsed the internet for articles and published his first article on how Donald Trump, during a campaign rally in North Carolina, slapped a man for disagreeing with him. This never happened. But it set a precedent. The Macedonian town of 55,000 was the registered home of at least 100 pro-Trump websites filled with sensationalist fake news. For Boris, this meant $16,000 in the span of three months when the average monthly salary for Macedonia is $371. All this revenue was generated through Google's AdSense, an automated advertising engine. For the rest of the world in the U.S. presidential election, this meant the proliferation of bullshit in the form of fake news. Chomsky and Herman explore what they call a propaganda model, showing how mass media functions within very set parameters, sifting out information that might be disadvantageous to mass media. They determine five filters about what and how news is made available to the public by mass media. The first filter is concerned with the size, ownership, and profit orientation of mass media firms. The second filter is advertising. Very few publications are supported directly by their audience. Mass media corporations make their money from advertising, and from the point of view of the advertiser, they are purchasing access to this audience. The third filter has to do with the source of the news which we discussed earlier. The problem is further complicated when we find that there is a conflict of interest between mass media and those institutions mass media is supposed to be objectively covering. In effect, the news we read is, by and large, the news that the organizations that can afford it want us to read. Organizations with a large public relations apparatus in place. The next filter effectively prevents publications from putting out messages that undermine their parent corporation. And finally, everything is filtered through the current political paradigm that takes something of the following form. X, fill in the current paradigm, formerly communism, is evil. It is a threat to freedom, democracy, and everything that good, honest, and hardworking people, such as every real American, stands for. It is a real threat to our society and way of life. X has brutally murdered and tortured people in D, E, and F. It has ruthlessly suppressed the rights of those in G, H, and I. It is our duty as the custodians of truth and liberty to ensure that the world is safe from this growing cancer. And with God's help, we will make America great again. In this case, X can be liberals, the axis of evil, or Iran, Mexico, North Korea, whatever else is decided. The effect it has is essentially one that polarizes the masses. You're with us or you're against us. You're good or you're evil. Chomsky doesn't think that these filters are conscious decisions that journalists make. Rather, they are parameters that reporters, journalists, editors, readers, viewers, and others become naturally acclimated to over time. We are being tricked without even being aware of it. cases we'd rather live in the fake world than a real one. In Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, The Last Soviet Generation, he argues that during the final days of Russian communism, the Soviet system had been so successful at propagandizing itself, at restricting consideration of possible alternatives, that no one within Russian society, be they politicians or journalists, academics or citizens, could conceive of anything but the status quo until it was far too late to avoid the collapse of the old order. The system was unsustainable. This was obvious to people waiting in line for bread or gasoline or anyone fighting in Afghanistan or working in the halls of the Kremlin. The end of the Soviet Union was both unsurprising and unforeseen. The Soviet Union had become a society where no one believed in anything or had a vision of the future. No one dreamed or wished. People lived in a world where nothing was what it seemed. Hidden forces changed how they felt and thought. Reality changed minute by minute. 
They were ungrounded in themselves and in their world because their world was a reality that wasn't fixed. The socialists in power knew it was impossible to control and predict everything. But rather than reveal this, the technocrats pretended that everything was going to plan. Instead of taking responsibility and owning up, they escaped into a fake world. The media would play their part, the salesman play his part, the thief play his part, all stuck in existential loops of despair, apathy and alienation, tunnel vision at its worst. Adam Curtis, in his documentary Hypernormalization, argues that the West has reached a similar level of mass delusion. That, as this fake world grew, all of us went along with it because the simplicity was reassuring. The truth told to us by statesmen and news leaders amplified by mainstream media is the work of managers of perception. People who avoid telling the public the uncomfortable and complicated truths about the world in order to retain power within the status quo. Cyberspace was supposed to be to counterculture, freedom, and creative expression what LSD was in the 1960s, but the unknowing, casual user forgetting that LSD can cause episodes of psychosis, dissociation, and derealization also forgot that cyberspace is a tool that can make reality seem two-dimensional, make reality feel like a movie, and trap one in a web of loops. Conspiracy loops, social loops, personal loops, problems that we face over and over again that we cannot resolve at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them especially when the loops are time-dependent. In the obsessive mind, limited by tunnel vision, cannot see the patterns, only what's in front. So are we all doomed? Unseemly to deal with a reality that was too complex? We decided to escape into a fantasy land? What about academia? All these analytical skills we learn in college to break down texts? Unfortunately, academia is stuck in a loop of its own. A loop of perverse incentives and hyper-competition, not an entirely separate beast from hypernormalization. Modern academia is based on quantitative metrics, like the number of articles a researcher publishes or the amount of grant funding they bring. The incentives are perverse, because while the intended effect of incentivizing and evaluating a researcher may seem productive, once the quantitative metrics become the sole measure of the researcher's worth, the measures become counterproductive. Say a researcher is rewarded for increasing their number of publications. That's an incentive for the researcher to improve productivity, but once a quota like in a business model, is attached to the number of publications and the researcher's job depends on meeting the quota, then the actual undesired effect is one of an increased and inflated number of substandard publications. Similarly, when a university penalizes its researchers for not getting grant renewals by threatening the researcher's lab, salary, and reputation, the emphasis on academic research becomes on spending more time writing proposals that will get grants instead of doing research that will benefit science and humanity. A parallel would be the film industry. Even if you're a director who had successful movies in the past, getting funded for a movie that is not certain of success will be difficult, if not impossible, which is why we see sequels that are sometimes unneeded and why studios will keep funding superhero movies. In our case, universities are the film studios, directors are the researchers, and we're the hopeful filmmakers of the future. Unlike our case, the public understands and appreciates movies more, both as an entertainment and art form, whereas there's a greater disconnect between high-end research and public outlook on it. Why, then, is there such a focus on these metrics based on quantity, not quality, and on purging the researchers that don't publish and get grant funding? The short answer is university rankings and profits, researcher reputation, and federal regulatory power. 
University rankings influence public perception regarding the quality of education that a university provides. Rankings are, of course, based on arbitrary measures that, like the aforementioned quotas, cease to be good measures when they become a target. That is, when a university's main goals are to increase its rankings, the ranking, supposedly an objective measurement, does not truly depict the quality of research or education at the university because the system could be cheated. Northeastern University rose from number 162 in 1996 to number 42 in 2015 by changing their class sizes, acceptance rates, and peer assessment. This pressure to cheat exists for researchers as well, a point I will illustrate through another analogy. We don't have to look too far to see a parallel exemplifying Godhart's Law in a hyper-competitive publisher parish, or purge I suppose, atmosphere. The performance of Stalinist enterprise was based on a set of success indicators. The central authorities established quotas on volume of production, maximum level of labor, and amount of raw materials used. The factory manager will be paid a bonus when the factory meets the quotas. Thus, he has a strong incentive to meet the quotas. On top of that, he'd be a hero of the Soviet Union, and his family would be safe. Of course, the quotas increase because Stalin wants to prove that the Soviet Union is a world industrial power, and that a centralized command economy is superior to Western capitalism. The factory manager has to meet unreasonable quotas or he and his family will be purged as traitors to the Soviet Union. Fortunately, he knows that there is no central body inspecting the factory products, so shoddy and defective products will still count towards the quota and eventually get lost within a sea of other products in large warehouses. With these increased pressures of producer purge, he does the only reasonable thing, cheat the system. Despite science's historical contributions to advancing civilization, evidence shows that publications in modern academia too frequently suffer from lack of replicability, rely on biased data sets, apply low or substandard statistical methods, fail to guard against researchers, and their findings are overhyped. The Flint and Washington, D.C. water crises were inevitable due to institutional scientific research misconduct by the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention. This problem was not an isolated incident, and the problem of lacking ethical standards is not specific to academia. An extreme parallel on the other side of the world illustrates unethical standards. In Iran, the normalization of corruption in academia already exists. Unethical publishing and cheating are not illegal in the similarly hyper-competitive and perversely incentivized academic atmosphere in Iran. Iran's Academy of Sciences estimated that each year, as many as 10% of all master's and PhD theses awarded in Iran are bought. Essentially, an Iranian PhD student pays a certain amount for delivery of their thesis, paying more if lab work is required and if their paper is to be published in a respectable journal. This unethical practice damages the reputation of scientists who don't cheat and creates an environment of distrust in academia. A similar problem exists in China. Overall, the perverse incentives perpetrated throughout the system with the given hyper-competitive climate pressure researchers to cheat to compete. The end result is that we will create a corrupt academic culture. Public distrust in science will increase and humanity will take a devastating hit. Bullshit prevails. How do we actively prevent bullshit from taking over? Perhaps we can start with an analysis of our own loops, loops of self-deception. This involves, of course, actively interacting with our own patterns, be they in academics, social life, or elsewhere, asking why do we do something or how do we do something. We can then extend this pattern to others and be analytical. There are many upsides. Our brain becomes more trained in detecting bullshit and in recognizing patterns. The only downside is that such intensive analysis is time-consuming. 
and emotionally and mentally exhausting. With that being said, we've seen what being stuck in a hypernormal loop looks like. It led to the end of the Soviet Union, which perhaps is the other lesson. As we are stuck in loops and the beginning and the end of a loop are simply a function of the starting conditions, we can always look at patterns throughout history and in other parts of the world to understand things without experiencing the loops firsthand. On that bombshell, I pose the question, what loop are we in right now? What is the reality we believe in? And then, what is the truth? What someone believes is strongly linked to their identity, both personally and socially. That's why when someone's beliefs are challenged, either by themselves or someone else, it feels personal, and adjustment is not easy. This idea sets up cognitive distance. Opposing ideas can challenge a person's strive for internal consistency. Two ideas can make sense, be accepted or be realized on their own, and not match up with each other. The state of cognitive distance occurs when people perceive that a pair of conditions is inconsistent. Let's take a person who smokes, for example. One idea they hold is that smoking relaxes them. Another idea they hold is that smoking is bad for your health. Many people are able to satisfy their cognitive dissonance by thinking that smoking is worth the risk, their health would be poor regardless of smoking, or they cannot live avoiding all pleasures that are bad for their health. If they are unable to make these justifications, cognitive dissonance will occur. Dissonance can occur in a variety of instances. We encounter new events and new information becomes known. Even without novel or exceptional circumstances, cognitive dissonance is an everyday condition, since most situations are not clear-cut and most opinions are not black or white. Elections and politics, interpersonal interactions, balancing work and relaxation, and knowing the environmental impact of our lifestyles but not changing them. Those are all examples. Cognitive dissonance connects past opinions with future opinions. For instance, Mulanathan and Washington found that the act of voting for a candidate during an election leads to a more polarizing opinion of the president, even as far as two years after the election. The desire to avoid or alleviate any arising cognitive dissonance drives a lot of our thoughts and actions. We try to justify our previous decisions and actions, or change in order to be able to justify them, and remain internally consistent. This drive is ever-going and ever-changing. We continue to satiate cognitive dissonance or be affected by your inability to do so. This can result in a personal sore spot. Unknowingly, many people are aware of their unalleviated cognitive dissonance and feel uncomfortable confronting their internal consistencies. You can see this, for example, when asking a friend about their political opinion and bringing up a counter-argument. If you say, well, what about this, and they get defensive, they're likely experiencing cognitive dissonance. This idea will always be uncomfortable unless A, they change their belief to fit with your counterpoint, 
which we will later discuss is not a common tendency, or B, they justify their original belief despite your counterpoint. The innate desire to be right often distracts us from the fact that many of our important beliefs are not true. We have a motivation to freeze our beliefs. People use their belief system as factual foundation about the world, rather than as an evolving organization of gathered truths. Freezing a belief means considering it as a truth, even if it seems off from time to time. Kruglansky claims this motivation depends on three factors. The needs for structure, what we wish to believe, and the need for validity. The need for structure refers to how we have to organize what we know in such a way that it gives us clear guidance for action. If we need to make a quick decision, we choose what seems to be the most probable hypothesis at that time, and we act on it. We ignore the alternatives. This probable hypothesis then becomes to us a truth despite its development in a singular context, and its only validity being ease and convenience. What we wish to believe refers to how people have their own personal values, ideas, and images of themselves, and tend to select beliefs which fit them. What we wish to believe can be very innate. We start creating this template from a very young age. Our family and upbringing has a huge influence over us and can teach us what we want to believe. Despite autonomy, people tend to adopt the religious and political beliefs of their families or the people closest to them. The need for validity can fluctuate variably depending on the situation. It refers to the general rule that we do not believe things that we know not to be true. However, what we know does not always match what is actually true. If our need for validity is low, we can cope with a bit of inconsistency. For example, if you're taking a class on a subject you only know a little bit about, and a fact is presented to you by someone who is obviously more versed on the subject that challenges the little you do know about the subject, adjustment is easy. You don't feel invalidated. However, if you've based a lot more of your beliefs on an assumed truth, and that assumed truth is challenged, so is your need for validity. The longer and stronger you've believed a truth, the more difficult adjustment is, because you're no longer adjusting a small part of your belief system. So we just discussed what happens when our beliefs are challenged, how we go about adjusting them, and why we cling to things that are not true. But how do beliefs develop? We mentioned the role that the need for structure, what we believe in, and the need for validity play in the development and adjustment of our belief systems. But there's more to the story. We like to think that we pick our own belief system, that we have free will over our choice of moral code, religion, or other ways we organize our world. We like to think we as people live our lives with a reasonable amount of logical skepticism. But our beliefs are actually dictated by psychological processes outside of our conscious awareness that control more than most people would expect or be pleased to find out. To start with, people are especially prone to accept the things they hear and see as true. Why is this? One explanation is that people are Spinozan systems. Spinozan systems are systems that, when faced with shortages of time, energy, or conclusive evidence, may fail to not accept ideas that are involuntarily accepted during comprehension. This is different from the Cartesian procedure, or what most of us think as basic logic. In the Cartesian procedure, when we're told an idea, we comprehend it, referred to as the representation stage, and then we decide on acceptance or rejection during an assessment phase. In the Spinozan procedure, we comprehend and accept the idea during the representation stage, and later, during the assessment phase, we certify it or decide it is unacceptable, requiring a change in our beliefs and showing our bias towards assuming facts as truth. 
We're less likely to change our assumption of truth if we hear the idea from someone who we assume to be credible, like a close friend or family member. News and media sources, public figures, someone older than us, someone with presumably more experience on the subject matter, or a figure of authority. Since we do this automatically, we often do not actually take time to assess the true credibility of a source. Spinozan theory is only one explanation of the relationship between doubt and our belief system, but virtually all current and classical theories presume a similar premise. Once the truth value of an idea is established, this truth value is tagged onto the idea and is part of its mental representation. If you think of people as efficiently functioning systems, this makes sense. We do not have to reassess the validity of our knowledge each time it is used. In simpler terms, in order to conserve mental resources, when information is told to us, we most likely assume it is correct unless we have good reason not to, and continue to use this truth value alongside the idea. If new reasoning later arises, we then challenge this belief with logical skepticism. Secondly, it turns out that truth-seeking is actually opposed to the way our brains process information. The desire to know the truth regardless of whether it aligns with the beliefs we currently hold can come at the price of slower decision-making, extensive mental deliberation, and emotional unrest. This does not match our brain's priority for efficiency and survival. The brain is biased. Even when it knows better, it allows and holds onto false beliefs to maintain internal consistency, peace of mind, and actions at a reasonable pace. This can be an efficient strategy. If something has been working for you and you're comfortable with it, why change? Your brain's inclined to work with the easiest, most accessible information because it assumes this information is the most likely to be true. It uses your experiences to gather information and develop a belief system that works for you. It's less concerned with what's universally true, especially if what's universally true does not work for your benefit. So do we have any hope of tackling these biases that are so naturally ingrained? It's likely impossible to completely rid yourself of biases, but being aware of them can help us grow as people. Even scientists who pride themselves on objectivity use countermeasures in their experiments to control for biases. Statistical procedures, double-blind studies, machine outputs, and multiple experimenters comparing their results between each other are examples of these safeguards. The next time you argue with someone about something you believe to be true, step back. Ask yourself how you came to this conclusion. Sometimes all it takes is applying a little dose of skepticism to your own beliefs to overcome inherent biases. Allow yourself the space to pause and consider changing your mind. Your beliefs can change. It's okay to have been wrong. It's okay to think about things differently. <laughs>